and welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians where the language is strong, but the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Dr. Mark D. Schertz. I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. <laughs> I am an evolutionary biologist and actually a closet herpetologist now. And I am joined by my two co-hosts, Ethan Kosak. Hi, I'm Ethan Kosak. I am a cartoonist and salamander enthusiast and, I guess, herpetoculturist. And Gabriel Ligetto. And I'm Gabriel Ligetto, and I'm a scientific illustrator and paleo artist, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore, although that might change. I don't know. We'll see. <sighs> so nice <laughs> to be back on the show. So nice to be back on the show. We have, as listeners by now may be aware or should be aware, we've changed up a little bit the style. And on the previous episodes, we've talked about uh, recent news in herpetology. We've talked about what we've been up to and all kinds of uh, the, the World Congress of Herpetology. And now we're going to take on uh, the, the third section of our show that has been until now, which we've been calling Hashtag Herpers, where we talk about, uh, where, where three men talk about the importance of women in herpetology <laughs> because we're trying to make up for something. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean... And we're going to explore that a little bit on the on this episode yeah. because we think it's really important that we talk about it and um, and we have a new strategy for how we're going to go 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 forward. But um, we're actually going to start off this episode by talking about an interview that I had. This is the first time I've ever interviewed anybody in my entire life. Um, so the story is this: back in. November, December 2019, a little graphic appeared on Twitter posted by Emily Taylor at Snakey Mama on Twitter. And she posted a graph of the sex biases of the different herpetological disciplines. So people working on Sicilians, people working on lizards, people working on snakes. We'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> all of the different groups and what the relative ratio was of uh, uh, sex ratio. So males and females, and we'll come back to that later as well. Um, working on these different groups of reptiles and amphibians. And immediately when we saw that, that, um, data set or, or that analysis posted on Twitter, um, we had a bit of a discussion among the three of us here on the show. And also I uh, talked with Emily herself and we discussed that it would be great to have her actually come on the show and, and how cool it would be to actually talk about her data set because this is super important um, to contextualize. You know, we know that herpetology is a male-dominated field, and we do have real problems with sex biases in the field. But it's hard to quantify that, and it's really hard to promote change without I, I, quantifying it. I think that, that there's a there's a I think it's a perception problem also, not only in herpetology per se as a science, but also everything that is surrounds reptiles and amphibians. Am I right, Ethan? I think that... Yes, that's... yeah. At least from, from my side of things, there's always been this sort of machismo element to, you know, to keeping snakes, for example, and uh, which I have always found obnoxious, for the record. But it is. 
Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> but there's something there, even in the non-academic sense, attached to, to reptiles and amphibians, I think. Yeah. And we yeah. know so much also about like how the fear of, of snakes and reptiles in general is, can be a very social um, thing that also is associated with these societal norms for, you know, it being generally accepted as being cool for little, for young boys to find reptiles and amphibians interesting, but there's sort of a stigma against that same sort of feeling in girls or there's a socialization among, um, you know, groups of kids because kids are obviously so strongly influenced both by their parents who give this impression and also by other kids, right? Um, right. that, that, you know, the whole system is sort of set up that it's creating these biases. Um, but what Emily and, and her students have put together is a really good quantification of the data and where it actually stands. So we got to talking with, with Emily and we said, Hey, it would be great if you could come on the show and we could, you know, talk about, um, the 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 analysis behind your data set and and what this actually means and she said well it's not all published yet and um, but in theory we can actually talk about it and 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 um, and make something happen and then we tried to look at, at scheduling and we realized that both of us would be attending the World Congress of Herpetology and more importantly she would be there also with uh, the students who actually have been putting together this really great data set that they assembled and so. Uh, at the World Congress of Herpetology in Dunedin in New Zealand. We both flew roughly halfway around the world in opposite directions. We met there and uh, we sat down in a somewhat busy sort of cafe area and we talked about the data set. And so now, without further ado, I'm going to run the interview with Emily and her two students. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Let's go this way around. Or this way around. Let's start with the students. All right. I'm Isabel Barnes. I'm a fourth year animal science student and uh, biology minor at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And I'm working on the Women in Herpetology project. Awesome. Hi, I'm Katie Rock. I am a third year biology student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, actually same as her. And um, I am actually the lead on the Women in Science project. And I'm Dr. Emily Taylor. I run the Physiological Ecology of Reptiles Laboratory at Cal Poly. Awesome. Great. So, you guys know who I am. I don't have to introduce myself. Um, <laughs> uh, but, so, so tell me about the project. How did the project start? The project started with, um, well, Emily, you had been saying how you had noticed at like conferences like these that there was an underrepresentation of women as speakers. You know, you, I think you mentioned like 50 speakers, only seven being women, and that's when you had the idea. And she approached us because she wanted, I want some of these from my female students on this project, and we're all very excited about it. And we've gotten some really cool data back. Yeah, that's great. I, I should mention that we are at the World Congress of Herpetology. We're sitting in Dunedin. You can hear in the background other people chatting about projects and food and things. So, you know, that's why there's background noise. I apologize for the lack of purity in the sound, but you know, <laughs> we had to make a compromise. It gives us that social atmosphere that I think is good. So, so how did you go about assembling the data and sort of where is the project right now? So we um, got names from the web of science or papers from the web of science and we searched keywords like serpentes or snake to find the papers. So we did it for the past um, thir or 10 years for all orders of herps and then for the past 30 years for lizards and snakes specifically. And um, once we got all the papers, 
we were able to have our computer science associate uh, run them through a program that uh, ran them past a U.S. names database that used U.S. birth certificates to assign the binary sex to the name. And we do want to recognize that sex is not binary and gender is not binary, but unfortunately that's just the data we have yes. available to us right yeah. now. I mean, the U.S. records obviously are not doing a very good job of keeping track of people right. who yeah. are not on the binary side of the scale. So exactly. I totally understand. So how did you deal with um, people who weren't from the U.S.? How did you deal with non-American names? So, um, in the names database, it takes into account immigrants and people from all over the place who have come to the U.S. also. So, mm -hmm. I, it seems like we were able to get a decent amount of people. Um, and the program would also assign a probability to the name being uh, one sex or the other. So, that's something. And then it would assign it to whichever higher probability it was. But that should be numbers that we're able to look at in the future, too, and say, um, this is the likelihood that um, the date that these names are male or female. Okay, all right, all right. So I guess that, you know, we, we have a, there are, herpetologists are super diverse, of course, and, and you're gonna be coming into conflicts with all of these names where, you know, the distinctly uh, Western um, view of them makes it really difficult to sort right. of Well, you know, we expected yeah. that, but as it turned out, the names database has hundreds of millions of names from 1870 up to 2015, wow, okay. including immigrants from all over the world mm -hmm. because, you know, the United States is such a melting pot. Yeah. So there were very, very, very few names that we weren't able to assign. And when you consider that our sample sizes are in the hundreds of thousands, yeah. you know, yeah. any few names that we can't assign aren't going to really impact our overall trends, yeah. which is a yeah, which of is course, comforting. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. to me, there's always these, these problems. So there's a really funny story that I should tell you, which is um, a famous herpetologist who worked on the frogs of Madagascar, uh, Jean Guibet. So he's a French man, um, but his name is spelt J-E-A-N. Oh, yes. Jean. And so there is actually a species that is named after him. Um, and when you're formulating the species name, it should have a feminine ending or a masculine ending depending on the sex of the person. And so they got it wrong. Oh my God, that's great. Exactly. So there is a species that has the, the epithet, Gibeye, referring to him as though he were a woman. So, you know, it's this kind of cultural thing. But as you say, you know, when you've got a database of this size, you're you know, you're never going to have, we have this in, ph in phylogenomic data sets all the time, nothing is going to be perfect, but at least, you know, on the whole, the trends are going to be real. Exactly. Right. So and and, and for, for, for major contributors, for people who are authors of, you know, hundreds of papers, we do go in by hand. Like, so for example, I had to reverse the sex assigned to Lori Vitt because <laughs> he has published so many hundreds of papers and I assigned a female to him, but I know him. Yeah. And so to a certain extent, we're able to manually So you are able to curate. Errors. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So you're presenting this here as a poster, and the poster is very data-y. Mm -hmm. um, so what have you found? So I mean, What we found is that um, 2010 to 2019, across all orders, um, women are under, like, there are less women. There's two to one ratio with two men to each woman. And, um, and we were surprised to see that um, with uh, snakes and lizards, we were expecting there to be um, less women with snakes, but there's actually less women in the lizards research, which is interesting to see because we don't really, there's no explanation for some of these trends. And so, then, yeah, sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but my, uh, I was just going to say, because on the podcast, you haven't listened to the podcast, so you don't know this, but on the podcast, we have a bit of a running thing where we whinge about the fact that snakes are just legless lizards. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
do you think it makes sense to treat them differently? Do you? I mean, have have you looked at the skink literature? I mean, because they're also like the lizards, right? Yeah. So. Well, we, we broke it into orders, and then the only order we broke into suborders was squamata because we thought that there was a big enough difference, like in in like the groups of um, because like the pe- people who research snakes and lizards, it seems like a very different group of people. Uh huh. And that was our a prior hypothesis, right. and then our data are showing yeah. us that we're not necessarily You're able correct. to reject it. That's great. Yeah, which yeah. is really interesting because. You know, as a as a woman growing up studying snakes, I really it seemed to me that there were fewer women studying snakes than lizards, but that doesn't actually seem to be the case, at least in terms of authorship. Yeah. So yeah. that hypothesis was rejected. Yeah, it's go. really interesting. Data. Yeah, great. Data are amazing. Great. And we can <laughs> overcome our biases, and that's such a big problem, right? There's also this this inherent bias that leads to a hypothesis like that. And it's yep. good to see that that's sort of being contradicted. So where is the data going now? What is your plan with it? Um, well, another part of our poster that I actually was getting to, um, it's actually that w- the number of women in the field has actually doubled over the past 30 years since the 90s. Awesome. went from in an terms average, of authorship. In terms of authorship. Um, it started out with like average of 15% women in the 90s, and now it's more like 30%. And so obviously, it's not 50. We're not anywhere near 50-50 yet, but we're getting there, and it's pretty exciting to see that the trends is going. The yeah, right I saw way. the trend on your poster, and I mean, it's it's clear, right? There's no there's no room for skepticism there. It really seems like it is moving in the positive direction. Um, do you have any notion of the position of the authorship? Because I know that there's been discussion of the you know first authors tending to be males when the you know females are being shifted along the list to more more central authorship what's that been like or do you have that data yeah we do so that's actually part of our poster as well as we have authors overall and then um first author listed on the paper too and the trend is pretty much the same there is for i believe it was for gymnofiona some of the numbers flip-flopped because there is at least one woman who published a lot of papers and was the first author on a lot of gymnofiona papers marvelly wake yes yeah. <laughs> exactly and because there's um, such a small number of papers on gymnofiona right. she has an inordinate effect of course of course but, she does. but that falls apart when you look at these yes. Big yeah, the yes. same and the same general trends follow the same uh, follow the same line. Yeah. So um, we have looked at that, and we've like I think we've just started talking about too. Someone suggested yesterday actually that we look at last author listed also. Yes, very because important. Because there's yeah, of course there's so many different things that are going on and how authors are listed. Right. So right. There's lots of things to look it's at. It's actually interesting. I mean, in my interactions, we've had some American first authors and some German first authors, some Malagasy first authors, and the the way that we manage last authorship actually differs quite a lot. So only with an American first author have I ever had the situation where the author, authors were listed in decreasing significance order so the last author was me even though I contributed the least to the paper because they listed it with the most important and then second most important and then third most important but when I look at a paper immediately I'm assuming that the work is you know mostly done by the first author in consultation with the last author yes. and you know that's I think the typical but it's yeah. not always that way. And I guess, you know, we have this problem that the number of professors who are female in, in herpetology is dramatically lower than the number of male professors. Um, so I would expect, again, we can have the same hypothesis, right, that the last authors are going to be even stronger dominance toward male authors, except, of course, the people who've done their uh, their work in Marvelous Lab and all of these, like, you know. Yeah, I mean, we... This is an analysis that we're going to be doing you know, very seriously in the coming months, but just like Izzy was saying, looking at 
first authorship trends versus last authorship trends, you see that the last authors seem to bump a little bit higher into male-dominated than first authors. Uh, excuse me, then not last authors. First authors bump a little bit higher into male-dominated than total authors. Mm -hmm. um, but when we add the last authorship to it, it'll be really interesting. We're going to do a lot more too, like looking at whether if there's a male versus female first or last author, does that mean that there's more male or female right. co-authors? There's a recent paper in ecology studies looking at that. So we have a lot of plans of additional analyses to do because it's such a ginormous data set. I should mention right now That's too great. that the, um, the program that was written custom for us in, in Python is going to be made public so that um, after, our, after we publish it, that um, anyone will be able to do this. So, so editors of journals will be able to download their data and Super. immediately Super. Copia contacted me and said, we've been keeping track for the past year. And I said, oh, well, here, do you want the past 30 years? And gave it to them immediately. <laughs> so we'll be able to do, people will be able to use yeah. our code yeah. for looking at any sex trends they want to. That's super great. Yeah. And I, I talked about you briefly in front of the poster with the, um, the time limitations backwards. So can you guys elaborate a little bit on the limitations of when you're able to start the database and if you're going to look even further into the past? What have the problems been with looking back there? Well, so with specifically with the snake and lizard data, we were, are trying to go all the way back to the 70s to get mm -hmm. 50 years, because it sounds a lot nicer than 30. <laughs> and, and the 70s was a crazy time. Things were different back yeah. then. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so we're You could wait 20 years to publish. You can also get I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. No, um, and then also just looking back at the 70s, I imagine like the number of women was far smaller. So it would be interesting to see what that percentage would be. But the limitation with that is, is that most papers back then had no first name attached to them so we've been having to manually try to look up people's first names as their as authors right. and it's tricky because sometimes they're just not out there to find and you know there's been speculation with maybe female authors are less harder to find like what their first name is because you know maybe they were more secretive about it because it was not mm -hmm. as um, they weren't being supported. Yeah, we heard anecdotes about that. Yeah, okay. that's just a it thought. Could possibly be the case. Interesting. I mean, J.K. Rowling is the classic example of you mm -hmm. know, of, mm -hmm. you know, even mm -hmm. today we have this problem where women are being discouraged from using first names or full names uh, because of inherent biases in the way that yeah. people read and, and interpret. So. Yeah, I mean, Co our Copia, one of our major herpetological journals, just went to a blind review process where the author's names won't be known because of the well-known, mm. well-known um, biases, biases against female authors when yeah. someone's reviewing your paper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's such a shame that that is happening. I mean, you know, it's... It's, it's also a thing that where people have to consider their privilege when they're talking about it. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm reviewing papers, I like to um, use my full name in my review and, and be yes. open about it because, you know, if I'm going to be a dick, I want them to at least be able to put a head on it. <laughs> so I have a policy of always signing my reviews, but I acknowledge that that's not always possible. And I see the need for this sort of this, this blind or double blind uh, review process to overcome the biases that are there. And, uh, you know, I can't really talk to that as a personal thing because unless the people know me and don't like me, uh, usually, you know, I, I'm using it to my advantage and I understand that people can't always do that. And that's mm -hmm. also, you know, so we always have to be cognizant of how significant it is for people of different backgrounds, different histories and different genders and sexes and all that stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, cool. So. What is the what is the future of the data set? What's going to happen next? 
Well, there's a couple other things that we're doing in addition to the um, analyses that we've already thought of and that we got some great suggestions last night at the poster. Uh, we'll be looking at, at analyzing those and publishing that this spring. In addition, we're doing two other projects related to this. We are getting our hands on as many conference attendance data sets as we can so that we can look at the sex ratios of conference attendance in, in herpetology. So for example, I, I was able to get the data from the 2017 JMIH meetings in Austin. And we had around 55% female graduate students. So mm -hmm. more, which is, you know, again, that matches qualitative what, what, what you notice. Right. Um, and yet only 30% female, 30 female professionals. Hmm. And okay. that really matches what you were talking about when you look at um, you know, biology professors versus biology graduate students and even undergraduate right. degrees across the country. About 55 to 58 percent of degrees, you know, bachelor's, master's and PhDs are awarded to women and yet only about 30 percent. They're not getting the tenured mm -mm. positions. No, they're not, getting they're not. And there's many reasons why that is, of course. But, mm -hmm. you know, our job is to document these. So we're doing that. And then in addition, we're doing um, right now in January, we're doing a, a survey that probably will be um, made available by the time, meaning the results will be done by mm -hmm. the time this podcast is published. Yes. And sure. we're going to be, um, in that case, we're asking people about their experience, asking them why did they get interested in herpetology. I'm very much interested in this kind of socio-cultural idea of, of, of mm -hmm. whether the animal got you interested in the, in the herp, and if so, what kind of animal was it, and does that relate to sex at all? So that's one of the things right. we're going to dabble in, in a much, le much less formal way. Okay, okay. I was wondering also if you're so you're you're tabulating all of the um, the sexes of the people who are writing the, the papers. What about um, the countries, the nationalities, the backgrounds? Because I wonder if there are strong differences between you know the British, the Germans, the Americans, the uh, Japanese and Chinese authors. You know all of these different um, country biases that are also going to be playing a role. I mean, we'd love to do that. Mm -hmm. Certainly, we can't do it on a large scale because. Um, that takes, you know, again, doing it manually. And again, we have hundreds of thousands of data points where instead of subsampling, we've been able to actually sample almost every single herpetology paper published in the past 10 years and then many of the ones in decades before that, which is really powerful. That's uh, spectacular. But we could do a, sub a subsampling. And in that case, we would, we would be running up against, the only, the only way I could see really doing it would be coding the country of their address at the time, which mm -hmm. isn't always exactly. the country of their origin. True. And either of those could actually be really interesting. So, so certainly doing a subsampling in the future um, would be would be a, a great idea of something to add to it. So you guys ready to get to back to more work then when we get back? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this has been super awesome. I'm so happy that this is happening. And, you know, and it's great to be able to sit down with you guys and see bachelor students who are already <laughs> contributing so significantly. And I mean, this the kind of direction that we need to move the field to be aware of it to talk about it and to you know yeah well, to thank you for it. sitting down with us too yeah, <laughs> it's been yeah. really cool. i agree and i'm yeah. going to turn interview interviewer really quickly for just a second and ask them a question what has this meant to you guys what has what have you learned from doing this why is it important to you this has um, meant a lot to me like i mean obviously like coming here and going to this conference I'm getting to see people from all around the world and hear about their research it's really opened up like my world kind of because you know like seeing all this research coming from everywhere it's really inspiring and also just with the project I because you know you know women are like underrepresented but you like seeing the numbers is really powerful because you know like you're not imagining it it's it's actually a real right. problem right and I think I one thing that's been really interesting and exciting for me is meeting women who have been in the field for 40 years and having them say, yes, these numbers are what I've experienced. I was the only woman in my lab. I was the only woman at this conference, whatever. 
and to and now it's and then to see it changing for my generation and to keep going forward with that is really exciting and to be able to give that information and give those numbers to people like we can say oh I feel underrepresented here but then we can shove the numbers out there and say this is actually what it looks like yeah yeah Yeah. so the ringing of the bell in the background means that it's time to wrap up thank you guys so much this has been really fun thank you you, great so there you have it It's such an interesting perspective and so cool that they had assembled such an enormous data set, right? I mean, yes, they did. They did not fuck around with with uh, gathering the data, you know, manually checking that many papers is no small feat. Yes. And I I think I love I love the I love the results that they got and I I love the, the, the study that they did. But what I love the most is all the things that they say they're going to do with this data in the future and all the, 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 you know, the results that we could get and, and how many um, different asks, how, you know, how we can see this in many different ways. Yeah. And, and, I want to, I would almost like to see like if they did that sort of analysis on like a whole bunch of different biological fields and sort of compared them if see to see if there really is something cultural attached to reptiles and amphibians that's causing that, you know, that's sort of right. So, 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 what you're saying is like, is this something that is inherently weird about herps that right. you wouldn't necessarily see in ornithology, right? So, yeah. I guess it's true that we can't contextualize it without having another data set where we are seeing because we know that in general there's also this sort of pressure that fewer, you know fewer women are being pushed toward the sciences in the in the first place or or being enabled to to come into the sciences so there is this already inherent bias and in being a scientist at all right um right that is leading to an overall bias in all the stem fields toward um men although that is definitely changing dramatically i mean here in germany you can look at the enrollment stats in biology courses and there is a a very strong female bias. So we have right now, I think, something like sixty to seventy percent females in some of the the biology courses that I think are, I've heard, that are running I've heard, in Germany. I've so. heard uh, a lot of uh, news about that. That seems to be the case in a lot of different careers. There seems to be, a, 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 you know, a university in general. There seems to be more women enrolled in a lot of different mm-hmm. careers. So that's, that's that's definitely something. But what I what I find interesting about this is you can look at this with this data, you can look at it in so many different ways and do so much with it that I think what they have is a gold mine because you can, you, you can see this in so many different, do so many different social studies, you know, based on, on, on other factors. Yeah, absolutely. It's super absolutely. I mean, you can take the first authors to figure out what's going on with the relatively, you know, the grad students and whatever. You can look at the last yeah. authors to figure out who's getting tenure and who's getting all of the, you know, the major positions. Yes. And if they do manage, especially to push further back into the past, I mean, right now they're sort of limited to the 70s. But if you can get further back and go like early 1900s, I think that's when we start to see the extreme changes that have been happening in herpetology in terms of the the emergence of of women in the science. Because until that time, I mean, the, the number of really impactful women from the early 1900s and late 1800s we've talked about a lot of them on the show yeah. at least those that are that are well known and so 
you know, today, the, the number of uh, amazing and inspiring women in herpetology that we can talk about who are researchers today is just unbelievable by comparison, right? Although there is still a lot to a lot, a lot of work to be done for sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, especially in those professor levels, so, exactly. so higher level yeah. um, positions. You know, I think we're doing much better on the whole at getting um, women herpetologists onto PhD positions and things, but keeping them and getting getting women scientists into the higher the more you know tenured positions long like, like these positions they don't the other thing is of course that the replacement rate of those positions is quite low right yeah. and yeah. so as a result it's hard like those changes happen more slowly because many of those positions are held for life i mean curator positions are often held for life and they only come up every few um, every few years, a big one. So it's hard to see the turnover in, I mean, you could maybe look at the applicants for the positions that do come up and see how things are changing. But the actual seats that are filled right now, a lot of them are filled by old men. Yeah. And it's yes. going to be some time before we really see big changes in that direction. Right. Well, I hope but so. They're coming. I, I, I mean, I hope so. Uh, I, yeah. I, there's always that, risk of being you know like i see that discussion a lot where it's like well you can't say necessarily that all the terrible old people are going to die off and you know <laughs> and we'll be left with the good people there the new terrible people crop up also but sure. absolutely mean, and you yeah. know sexism is still rife today there's yeah. no it is but we that. cannot deny also the fact that there are generational changes and uh, yeah there, yeah. Are, there are prevalent views and different generations and that shows yeah 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 i i think there's a lot of reason a lot of cause for optimism there for sure don't get me wrong <laughs> mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. i you know i'm just always i'm cautious of that because i it's not something i ever really thought about before yeah well i think that the field i, I think it's undeniable that the field is changing for the better we are having you know we're becoming more aware when things are really fucked that you know that that something needs to be done about them you hear about these bad actors and they get called out so but it's it is interesting that there are you know there are these big changes over time and also that the you know the different subfields are you know quantitatively different yeah but on the other hand we're still finding that some of the ratios are you know, counter to our expectations. We find yeah. more women in Sicilian biology than expected because Marvelly Wake. I was just going to bring up that, that I like that Marvelly Wake came up and, you know. Yeah. But, you know, the, the amazing thing is that it's not just Marvelly, um, yeah. but there are other, you know, other women who are working on, um, on Sicilians. So I met Dr. Chun Kamai at the World Congress as well. And she is also a Sicilian expert. So it's actually not just Marvely, of course. You know, Marvely was a real pioneer yeah. of, uh, of Sicilian biology. Um, but Chun is also, you know, or, or very significant now in the field and is, is teaching and, um, and pushing more people into um, or encouraging more people to, to study 
Sicilians and is really doing very, very interesting stuff there. Um, and also she's very funny and, and we had some, some very silly times together with the rest of the people from the National History Museum in London. Uh, that's where, um, where she is. So, you know, Sicilian biology, there, there are, um, you know, impressive numbers of women working in, in that field and in snake biology. I mean, we had, um, Helen, Bond yep. on the show as well. And, you know, she's also, you know, budding snake biologist, loads of, uh, of amazing women in snake biology. And, you know, that's, um, our, our expectations are maybe not exactly what we would think. Um, well, it was interesting too, that they said they had their own, uh, expectations going in. Right. And, and it wasn't necessarily played out that way. Uh, so, I mean, that's interesting stuff too. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we have to we have to challenge those preconceptions as well. And I think that's important at every level of the of the chain. Right. We need to challenge the preconception that the field is somehow overly masculinized. I mean, it is, but maybe it's not as bad as we think it is. And and our goals are really achievable. The way that we can change the field to be more inclusive is really achievable. That's very important right. and, to present yeah. it as more inclusive because a lot of the imaging that there that it is about right. herpetology and even on on, on 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 mass media, the image that you have about herpetology tends to be very crocodile hunter. Yeah, boys club in a in a yeah not in a, ple- in a really not in a pleasant way for way. yes not in a not in a pleasant way for my Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true. You know, it's, it's uh, somehow exclusive exclusionist and it's also just wrong. I it's mean, wrong. Yeah. It's there, wrong. There is a much greater diversity. And that actually brings me on to the next point that I really wanted to talk about, which is this, this diversity factor. So of course their data set is only limited to sex. And of course, sex itself is not binary, which is in, in humans, which makes things quite complicated. And in general, of course. Yeah. In general. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but also, of course, gender and, and um, you know, the vast majority of herpetologists are not just male, but they're also, the vast majority are white and the vast majority are probably straight, although that's not always hard to know. So we have this same, you know, this cis white male bias in herpetology um, that is not representative so you know this account on twitter um at herpetology with a l l a g in there um they've done a really good job of showcasing the diversity of people who are present in herpetology and um on the show you know we we have been striving to be more inclusive by by talking mostly about uh, important women in herpetology, but we also want to acknowledge that there is more than just this sex bias in herpetology, that there is, you know, um, a number of biases, a, a yeah. number yeah. of different biases, geographic not... bias, race bias, there's a ton of biases. Exactly, exactly. So we are going to endeavor in the future to also talk more about those issues. And so we're going to redub the section of the show. Mostly it's been called hashtag herpers until now, um, which has served the one purpose and it serves it still extremely well. 
but we want to be much more about equality and herpetology more inclusive. Um, in every direction, you know, right. be more inclusive. And so we're going to call the section equality and herpetology. Um, and we're going to talk about more of these issues. We hope to be able to talk also about geographic biases. We have, you know, um, uh, uh, all of these different problems in, in publishing, of course, that are going on in the accessibility of data. We have this practically, you know, neo-colonialist attitude toward specimens and, and um, the data that's coming out of developing countries that's being, you know, mostly analyzed and published by Western and especially European and, and American, uh, North American, USian um, uh, authors. And that's all something that we want to try and talk about as carefully and as openly as possible on the show to be more about equality and more about inclusivity in the field in every way that we can, because that's really important and we want to be, you know, advocating for change in the field as well. Yeah. And and let us know when we screw it up, because we probably will at some point. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think that, you know, everyone fucks up. We have to be... We, we are very open to receiving feedback. If you think that we could be expressing ourselves more carefully, more clearly... We are apologizing in advance. We are apologizing in advance. Yes. Absolutely. We're going to fuck it up. There's whenever very it, high chance of Whenever that. it trends the way that it trends. Whenever it trends the way that it, that it, that it does. <laughs> because life <laughs> needs things to live. <laughs> oh. So we hope that you enjoy the way that we're going to change this section of the show as we develop it. I mean, it's still quite raw. This is the first time that we've had an interview of this kind. I'm hoping on future conferences that I can continue to meet up with other people. But as I'm currently working on fish, the number of herpetologists I'm meeting is rather low. Um, but I am hoping fish. that we can. We fish. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try and have more guests on the show, more people actually talking about um, their experiences in you know whatever respect uh, coming into the field um, from from every walk of life and everything. And uh, we hope that you enjoy this and that it can also be a symbol for the change that the field is undergoing. And with that, we're going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for listening. We hope that you've had a good time. Uh, Ethan, where can one find you on the internet? You can find me anywhere online as at Black Mud Puppy. Pretty much anywhere that matters. And you have an amazing comic. People should go check it out if they like badass giant salamanders. Blackmudpuppy.com, yes. Exactly. And Gabriel, where can one find you on the internet? You can find me at Serpent Illus. That's S-E-R-P-A-P-E-N-I-L-L-U-S on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, on, uh, on Facebook. And you can find me on my website, GabrielUgueto.com. 
And you can find me at Mark Schertz, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z, on Twitter, on Instagram, on all of the other things. You should just Google me because some of them are different and I am bad at things. You can follow the podcast at Squamates Pod uh, on Twitter, at Squamates Pod on Instagram, at Squamates Pod on the Facebook. You can leave us a like and a review on Facebook. You can also do so on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you listen to. Apparently, that helps us get listened to by more human beings. But you know, the best way for us to get listened to by more human beings is if you tell those other human beings directly to their faces with your that word you mouth. like our show with your word mouth. <laughs> and hopefully, they will. In fact, if you stand there with them and help them to download or, or follow the podcast from their phone. That is the highest chance that they have of listening to the show. So please do that. And um, once you've done that, then you can go to iTunes and leave us a review because that would be very much appreciated. <laughs> we don't have a TikTok yet. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and with that... Thank you for listening to the show. And as we always say at the end of every episode, Hakuna Sumara.